As I said, today we return to the book of Ezra, so if you have not already begun, please start turning there in your Bibles. Uh, And just by way of quick reminder, Ezra is what we call a post-exilic book. It it was after the exile, after the Babylonian captivity, when the people were out of the land for a period of 70 years, and now they're going to return back to the land. And as we've said before, there are a few different exile books or post-exile books, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, uh, or historical books, uh, narrative books that we have that are after the exile, and then there's prophetic books, the book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, the book of Malachi. And I'd strongly recommend that as we're doing this study together, that you read through particularly those prophetic books, because it gives a lot of insight into what God wants to communicate to his people as we're reading in Ezra and Nehemiah, more of the historical information, and they go hand in hand. And as we get a little further in the book of Ezra, we'll, uh, we'll look at some of those prophetic books as well. So be reading through them. Well, as you recall, the Babylonian captivity took place in a series of waves or stages. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar first come in to Israel and Jerusalem in particular, or or the area around Jerusalem, around the year 605 B.C., and they take a portion, just a small portion, but a portion of the Jewish people. Uh, Daniel, for instance, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those fellows that we're familiar with from the book of Daniel, they're taken at that time, and that's 605 B.C., A second wave comes about eight or nine years later, that's 597, and that's when Ezekiel is taken into the area of Babylon. And then there's a final wave where they come in, and this is really the end. This is the most destructive wave of the Babylonians coming in, and this is in the year 586. And in 586 B.C., the, the temple is destroyed, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. This is where Jeremiah himself, that we read about in the scriptures, is prophesying. And it's from that point on in 586 B.C. that the people will be out of the land for a period of 70 years, not really coming back in full force for 70 years from that point on, which is an exact fulfillment, as we looked at previously, of the Scripture. So again, we looked at Jeremiah 25 and and the verses coming up there, specifically verse 11. Notice it says, And this land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But then after 70 years... Are completed, I will punish the king. Well, it begs the question, why 70 years? If you're into things like numerology and scripture, and that is just typology, where certain things sort of tend to mean the same thing throughout, there's a common thread, the number of judgment in scripture is actually the number 40. But here we have 70 years. So if you and I were writing the Bible and trying to stick to the way that it, it always is, we would have picked 40 years for this judgment. But yet this particular judgment is 70 years. And so it begs the question, why 70 years? Well, to answer the question, it requires that we sort of familiarize ourselves. Okay, why are the Jews being judged uh, to begin with? What's going on and why is God judging them? Well, we know certainly from Jeremiah 25, 8, it's because of disobedience. So again, looking at the verse, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. So the judgment is because of disobedience. But I want to know, well, what did they do wrong? Were they speeding? You know, did they say bad words? Like, what, what exactly did they do wrong that this judgment is coming on them? And we learn from the scripture that there are two different ways in which they disobeyed the Lord. The first is found earlier in that Jeremiah 25 passage. And the clue to us, the hint to us, look at verse 8. It begins, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have been disobedient. And every time we come in the scripture, if you read the King James, it's the word wherefore. If you read more modern translations, it's the word therefore. But every time you come to a wherefore, you should ask yourself what it's there for. 
because wherefore or therefore, those terms are conclusive terms. They're used to draw an argument to its point of conclusion. I said all of these things, therefore, this is the result of that. This is what should go from there. And so we have the reason that God is sending the enemies is going to be in those verses preceding verse 8. So let me go back and read to you. It starts in verse 1, but I'm going to pick up in verse 4 of Jeremiah 25. We have it up on the screen. It says, You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all of his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you to, to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. This is what the prophets have repeatedly been coming and saying. And he says, and then I'll do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Well, twice there in that series of verses, those four or five verses, we, we have the reason for the judgment or what their disobedience was. You see it there? It's with the work of your hands. And a little bit later, again, you provoked me to anger with the work of your hands. Now that speaks of idolatry. And it speaks of the worship and the service of false gods and idols. Which is a violation of the very first of Moses' commandments that God gave to Moses and he gave to us. You remember back in Exodus chapter 20, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Very first one, a prominent one. You know, most of us, we get the first one, we're ready, we've studied it, and then we kind of drift off as we move our way through and we don't pay as much attention when we're studying. This is the first one. This is the one you should know. No other gods before me. And yet, the Jewish people again and again and again in their history turn to idols and they turn to graven images. And as we were studying through First and Second Chronicles, what we saw is first that was in the northern kingdom. And there was sort of a... It was an interesting how that all sort of developed. It was more of like a political thing. When the two nations split, the king of the north said, look, if the people have to go down to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom a couple times a year, three times a year to worship, their hearts are going to be knit to the southern kingdom. So let's come up with our own new form of worship. And they set up their own images, and they said, these are the gods that delivered you out of uh, Egypt and out of slavery. We have a new religion. And that's how it sort of developed up in the north. And the south gradually picked it up as well. And after repeated warnings from God and from his prophets, God finally gave them over to their idolatry and their sin. And I think sometimes, and I, I know there's a lesson for us here, because sometimes we think that there are no consequences to our sin and our rebellion. And sometimes, even as followers of God, we develop this notion, because there wasn't a swift and immediate judgment, some action from on high like a lightning bolt out of heaven for this sin that we uh, found ourselves in, or that we're not kind of actively getting in trouble for this, well then you know what, maybe it's not really sin. Or maybe it's something that God doesn't really care about anymore. Well that's not the conclusion that God wishes for us to draw when swift judgment doesn't come our way. The reality is this, it's not that God doesn't care about those things, the reality is that's God's kindness toward us, that the swift judgment hasn't come. Lamentations chapter 3, a verse perhaps you're familiar with, and I appreciate the way the King James says it, so I'm going to read that to you. It says, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And sadly, too often people we know, and sometimes even ourselves, we presume on God's kindness. 
and we draw the conclusion, well, yeah, I know the scripture says this, and I know the scripture says that, but my case is different. Circumstances are a little bit different for me. And besides this, if it really bothered God, don't you think he would intervene and stop me? We, we sort of rationalize these things. That's presuming on God's kindness. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament warns us not to do that. The book of Romans says this, Do you presume, he says, on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the absence of swift judgment is not God's wink to us that everything is okay. And the children of Israel, after repeated warnings and repeated warnings about their sin of idolatry, were finally being judged for that sin. And not only were they being judged, but they were actually being given over to it, to use a term from the Scripture. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be given over to something? Well, essentially it means this. You want your idolatry here. Take your idolatry, is the idea that's being conveyed there. Babylon was the center of all false religions from the very beginning of the scriptures. Babylon was the center of all false religions in the ancient world. And it's as if God is saying, you want it? Well, then you can have it until you're sick of it. And I'm going to immerse you right in the midst of it. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. After 70 years of seeing idolatry up close and personal, the children of Israel did have their fill of idolatry. And when they do return to the land, roughly around the year 500 B.C., never again in the history of the Jewish people did Id idolatry sort of take over the nation. Now, no doubt there's some guy here and some guy over there and a lady who lives up here that practices idolatry. But as a nation, never again, because they were sick of it. They had seen it up close and personal. God had given them over to it. And he did so for a purpose. So the question is this, is being given over a good thing or a bad thing? Is God just sort of fed up and done with them? Well, obviously it's not a good thing to be given over to sin. But I would say this, God in his goodness does give us over from time to time, or some people that we might know, for a purpose. Maybe you recall in the book of 1 Corinthians when we studied that, that Paul instructed the believers there in the city of Corinth to deliver one of the brothers over to Satan. So the verse, these are the verses, or the words. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the, in the day of the Lord. Deliver the man over to Satan, the destruction of his flesh. I mean, you hear that, and you're like, my goodness, what did this guy do? That we're, you know, how harsh can we be here? Well, quite frankly, it's not so important what the man did at all, but it was his response to the correction that came his way. That's what he's actually being judged for. And like the children of Israel, again and again, this guy had been warned of his sin, but he refused to take heed. And it finally came to the point where the only thing that would bring this man to his senses was for him to feel the heavy hand of the consequences of his sin. So it's like a person that's sort of freaking out. And sometimes, you know, they just need a slap across the face to kind of bring them back to their senses. Well, this man needed to feel a little bit of pain. The nation of Israel needed to feel some pain before they could truly see the sin of their rebellion that they were involved in. And so, for them to do that, they would go into captivity. Now, why did they go into captivity? Again, number one, because of their disobedience and rebellion with the sin 
of idolatry. But it still begs the question, why 70 years? Why not 40 years? Or why not some other period of time? But why 70 years? And why does God give that to Jeremiah to speak to the people so that they'll return exactly in 70 years? Well, the answer reveals the second area of disobedience for the children of Israel. And to find that answer, we have to go back in our Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus chapter 25, you can turn there if you would. Uh, it's the third book in your Bibles. And Leviticus chapter, can I have my water, Luke? Leviticus chapter 25, while you're turning there, I'm going to get a sip of water. Some of you are, I ain't turning there. I come here to work. Leviticus 25 speaks of something called the Sabbath year. Now, we're familiar with the term the Sabbath. And we know that it reflects one day every week for us to kind of stop our work and to rest in the Lord and things like that. Well, similarly, the Lord directed the children of Israel to have a year of rest. So we call that the Sabbath year. And during that Sabbath year, they were not allowed to, to plant their fields and they weren't allowed to reap any harvest at all during that particular period of time or harvest from planted fields. So starting in Leviticus 25.1, it says this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And so the land could kind of replenish itself and its nutrients. Growing up on a farm, I remember driving. I didn't live on the farm. I would go and I would work there in the summer. So I wouldn't be there all year. And then I'd come back in June or whatever. And what, one of the things that I found interesting was the fields that we planted corn every year that I had been there, five, six years we had been there, all of a sudden it was a grass field. I said, what's that about? Because, ah, oh, it's the baseball field, the kid said. I said, I'm pretty sure your dad didn't build a baseball field. And why isn't he farming the land here? And I asked the, my cousin, the, uh, the farmer, and he said, well, we let the land just sit for a year, and we just let grass grow there, and it replenishes all the nutrients. And I said, I didn't know it then. Now I know it. That's what the Bible teaches. And here this farmer friend of mine, who's not a Bible reader, knew the same truth here. And so God said, just let the land sit. Now, we hear that. All right, you want me to let the land sit, not grow anything. That's crazy. For a year, I could do it for a week, but for a year, I got a family to feed. I got bills to pay. I got to make some money in this whole process. How are we going to provide for ourselves? What are we going to eat during this particular time? Well, God doesn't say this in the Bible, but his answer is essentially, you watch me, and I'll show you that I'll provide for you. Well, let me ask you, do you think that you could live with that kind of faith? I don't know. That would be pretty hard for me to live with that kind of faith. And the children of Israel essentially said to themselves, that kind of faith doesn't make financial sense. It doesn't make sense for me not to kind of farm out here and to, to make the money that I need to make here. And in my mind, I suspect immediately they began to think, some of the more analytical minds there began to think, okay, last year we created this many bushels, and from this many bushels we sold it for this amount of money, and that times 365, and that totals this amount. And they're thinking, man, that's thousands of dollars that we're going to lose here. We can't do it. Now, again, let's not be too hard on them because I think many of us would have the same difficulty if God asked us to do the same thing. Well, year after year after year, the children of Israel essentially just skipped Leviticus chapter 25. They knew what it said. They probably taught on it. They went to church and they probably made, I suspect, some sort of 
This is a symbolic thing that God is trying to say or something like that. But they just ignored this principle here of leaving the ground fallow for a year. And God just quietly took notice. And every seven years, he took a little slip of paper and he just checked off a number. That's one. That's two. That's three. That's five years you owe me. And after 490 years went by, the children of Israel owed God 70 years. And here as we come to the captivity, God said, I'm taking my years back. And you're all going to be sent out of the land, and the land is just going to sit. It was supposed to be once every seven years. Now it's going to be 70 years in a row. And that's what we read in the closing words of the book of Second Chronicles. And I have this for you on the screen. It says this, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And all the days that it lay desolate, it kept the Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. You know, you can't ignore God and not experience the consequences of that decision because it will catch up with you. And God's word never returns back void. We might think it will. We might think that God's not paying attention anymore. We might think that he doesn't care anymore, but it always comes back. It always accomplishes that which it set out to accomplish. And the children of Israel had done that, and now, after 490 years, they were required to pay that which they owed God. And that's why we have the 70 years. But now the 70 years have come to a close. Babylon is no longer the world-ruling empire that is transferred over to the Median Mede. Medo-Persian Empire, they were defeated, that is Babylon, and there's sort of a new sheriff in town. He's an emperor, actually. He's, uh, it's the kingdom of Persia, and led by King Cyrus, who, as we read last time we were together, he issues a decree. And again, as I said, the Babylonians, even the Assyrians, their method of, a, of conquering people was to take the people out of their land and put them somewhere else, and take other people and put them in this particular land. Well, the Medes and the Persians, or yeah, the Medes and the Persians, Persians in particular, their means was this. They, they sort of thought, you know, we'll get more obedience if we give the people a little honey and sugar every now and again. So we'll let them do whatever they want to do as long as they keep submitted to us. So they let them go back to their land, be good citizens there, just remember to revere us as those that are in charge. So if you look at Ezra chapter 1-2, we looked at this last time, but it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of his people, Jewish people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So again, notice, not everyone had to go. The Jews there in captivity didn't have to go. It wasn't mandated that they go, but they were permitted to go. If they wanted to, they could. If they chose not to, then they could stay back there in Babylon, essentially. Well, picking up in verse 5, it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone in whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Some couldn't do it. Too long of a trek. They were too old. They were aged. They, their health wasn't strong enough. And they couldn't make a 900-mile trek from Babylon back to the area of Jerusalem but there was a remnant that went. A remnant that chose to leave that which was safe, that which was comfortable, that which was familiar, that which was established, and they said, you know what? We're going to leave all of this, 
and we're going to go to a place that is unknown. We're going to go to a place that has lied in ruins for a generation, for 70 years. We're going to go back to that particular place. Jerusalem was a mess of a place at that time. But in the minds of the, this remnant that returned, it was God's place. And if God was leading them, and if that's what he was calling these people to do, that's what they wanted to do. And so God had stirred their hearts, and they decided to go back. You know, I'm reminded of the Apostle Peter. When he encounters Jesus walking on the waters, remember there in Matthew chapter 14, the waters are turbulent, they're rough. These guys are in the boat there. And Peter, I don't know why, but he says to the Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out there and I'll walk with you. Now here's Peter in the boat. It's nice, it's safe, it's sturdy. But regardless of all of those facts, he knows that it's better to be with Jesus in the unknown than it is to be without him in the known. And God had stirred his heart. And that's the mindset of these guys that are returning and gals that are returning back to Jerusalem. This is going to be for them a venture in faith. How's it, how's it going to work out? What's God going to do? How's he going to show himself? What are you going to eat? Where are you going to get a job? All these things. I don't know. I don't know, but the Lord is leading, and I can't deny that he is leading, and i got to go where he is. And so they return. And their thinking, I love, is something like this. All right, God, you're going to use someone to return to the land and rebuild the land. Why not me? What an attitude. That's the type of person God can work through. God, you're going to use someone. Why not me? I'm available. Here I am, Lord. Use me. And so they say that. And God, and so they went. And verse 6 says, And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Some of these folks were goers. That's not a real word, but you get the idea. Others, though, were senders. You know, not all of us are going to be able to go to the mission field. In fact, not all of us are called to go to the mission field. But even if you're not called to go, you can still participate in the work by being a sender. And God sees that. And God honors that. And he blesses that. And so God takes notice of it here in verse 6, that there are these senders. Also, please take notice, these senders, it says, they give of their costly wares and their beasts and so on and their goods, they give freely or they give willingly. It says there at the end of verse 6. They weren't being compelled to give. They weren't guilted into giving. Well, if you're not spiritual enough to go, the least you can do is write a check for somebody else to go. None of that. These guys willingly gave. Look, man, I can't make the trip. I'm too old. Look, I have young kids and we can't make the trip. Whatever the reason was, but I want to support you in this effort and I believe in what you're doing and I appreciate that you're able to do it. God bless you here. They support him. They do so with a willing heart. And we learn in the scripture that God loves a cheerful giver. You know the verse for 2 Corinthians 9. Each one of us must give as he has made up his mind to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Not under compulsion, but willingly. You know, I'm sure you've heard, but that word cheerful there, it could be translated hilarious. It doesn't make any sense. It would be weird if it was in there but it could be translated in that particular way. So imagine if it said that the Lord loves a hilarious giver. When was the last time you cracked up about something? Just to the point where tears came out of your eyes or you couldn't talk. For my buddy Luke and I, it was a couple of days before Christmas. We took my dog to go get his haircut. It was like 3 in the afternoon when we went to pick him up and we were hungry, we didn't have dinner. Don't tell my wife, by the way, because we, we, we went to McDonald's and got like a pre-dinner dinner. dinner. Uh, and so... We pull into the uh, drive-through window, and we're waiting for the lady to come on the intercom. And I had the window down. I'm just staring at the intercom. And it's like 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. 
And it seems like a while is going by, and I'm just staring at it. And so finally, I say to the intercom, I just sort of get that voice, I say, how you doing? To the intercom, just one of these things. And the lady is there, and she responds. She said, I'm doing good, may I take your order? And I'm like, so I just started laughing, and Luke started laughing, and now we're both laughing together through this process. And she's like, what do you want? And I can't talk because I'm cracking up there. And I almost just drove away because of the embarrassment of the whole thing. Well, imagine that type of an attitude, just laughing and you can't control yourself in this process of giving to the Lord. And perhaps not cracking up to the point where you can't talk and place an order at a drive-thru, but to just be so jazzed about the opportunity to participate in the work of the Lord. These guys here in Ezra, they freely, they willingly, they cheerfully gave to support the work of the Lord. And for whatever reason, they weren't able to go, but they could hilariously support those that were going. And look at verse 6. Even Cyrus gets in on the giving. It says, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and he placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers or knives, some of your versions has, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels, all vessels of gold and silver. They were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, those items were the ones that Nebuchadnezzar, remember the king of Babylon, had seized from the temple. So in that last wave that I mentioned in 586 B.C., as uh, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, they take out all of these vessels and they bring them back to the area of Babylon. We learned from Daniel chapter 5, one time they're having a big party and they decide, wouldn't it be awesome to take the holy vessels from the gods that we have conquered and drink our alcohol and praise our gods with them? And so they have this big feast and they pull them out here. Well, now those vessels are being returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of this new king, King Cyrus. And in addition to Cyrus, we have two other names mentioned here in this verse. Verse 8. The first is a fellow by the name of Mithridath. Now, Mithridath is not a Jew. He's a Persian. And his job, he was the treasurer of Cyrus's wealth or of the kingdom's wealth. And included in that wealth were these precious temple vessels. And so he counts them out very carefully uh, to this next guy whose name is Sheshbazar. Now, Sheshbazar is a Jewish guy, but he has a Babylonian name. So Sheshbazar is a Babylonian name, which means he was a Jew that had been in captivity, and they changed his name. And we see examples of that in the book of Daniel as well, uh, where the captives would have their names changed as part of the whole process of sort of assimilating them and just kind of shaking up kind of their world, if you will. And that's how we, the names we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not their Jewish names, that's their Babylonian names there. Sheshbazar, it means worshiper of fire. And this fellow, this Jewish guy, is called this worshiper of fire, not because he was a worshiper of fire, or his parents were worshipers of fire, but because the Babylonians worshipped fire. And they make this guy take that particular name. It was a name that was forced upon him. We learn from the scripture that his real name is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is a name which means sown in Babylon. Some versions say a stranger in the land 
of Babylon. And so this particular fellow was born in the captivity to his parents. They may have been uh, transplanted from Jerusalem, or they too may have been born in captivity. But this guy we know was certainly born in captivity. And this is one picture of even in the midst of affliction, even in the midst of these trials, this captivity that they are going through, the Lord blesses this family with a child. And so this little fellow sown in Babylon. He was sown in Babylon, but notice as the verse ends, verse 8, he's going to return to Jerusalem as the prince of Judah. And even in their captivity, as we're going to see as we go through here, the Jews were very, very careful to preserve and keep record of their lineage, as we're going to see in the next chapter here. So that being the case, we know this, that this Zerubbabel was actually the grandson of the last king of Judah, a guy by the name of King Jehoiakim, who was taken at the first wave of the Babylonian captivity. This guy Zerubbabel, royal line here, ultimately from the line of David, is an important fellow in our story and in the history of the Jewish people. His name appears 21 times in the scripture, each time with the exception of one referring to him. There's another guy with the same name that's just mentioned in passing. And he is a lead character in the book of Ezra, in the books of Nehemiah, the book of Haggai, and the book of Zechariah. So he's a key guy. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Zerubbabel. You probably know this verse, though. Zechariah chapter 4 says, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Probably a verse you're familiar with. Those words were spoken to Zerubbabel. So we're going to learn a lot about Zerubbabel as we continue to move through here. And he's called, in our passage today, he's called the Prince of Judah. Well, Prince, we think of the king, the prince, you know, the dukes and all those folks, whatever it may be. It's a word which simply means leader or captain. It's translated in other versions of the Bible as governor. In, in particular, even in my version here, the ESV in uh, Ezra, it calls him prince. In the book of Haggai, it calls him governor. So it's a word that can be used interchangeably here. And so Haggai 2 says, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. So here's the treasurer of Persia counting out to the governor of Judah all of these items. And I read them there to you. Now some of the more significant articles of the temple are conspicuously missing. So we have knives here, we have bowls, we have utensils and so on. But we don't have mention of the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have mention of the brazen altar. We don't have mention of the temple of showbread. Uh, or it's the table of show, showbread, I should say. And probably, we don't know for certain, but it seems as if those items were likely destroyed when the Babylonians ransacked and razed the temple 70 years earlier. And so we have these remaining items here. But notice what we have. We have 29 knives, it says. We have 410 bowls of silver. We don't have 25 knives. We don't have 30 knives. We don't have some round number of knives. We don't have 400, or it's about 400 uh, bowls here of silver. We have a very exact number. And notice how exact God is that he even takes notice of the number of utensils that they were. How many spoons do you have in your little drawer in your kitchen right now? Any idea? I think I got three. I, I don't know what happened to all of our spoons in our household. Let me ask you this question. How many children do you have? Do you know the answer to that question? I certainly hope you do. So if God knows how many spoons are in the drawer, then he knows you. And he knows everything about you in a very intimate way. You know, sometimes in a busy world in which we live in, there's this sense of 
wondering, does God even take notice anymore? Have you ever felt sort of, what's the point with all I'm doing? What good am I really doing in society? Does it really matter? Am I ever having a real kind of impact or any kind of impact? Well, I don't know the answer to each of those questions, but I do know this. The Lord takes notice, and he will not forget our labor that is done for him. And he will not forget us. He's intimately aware of us. Hebrews chapter 6, speaking of our labor, he says this, For God is not so unjust to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints. The King James Version said that God is not so unrighteous to forget. You see, God sees each one of us and what each one of us are involved in and the labor that we are doing. And the scripture says that he takes notice of those things. That should be an encouragement to you. In a world of 7 billion people that are all going in their own directions, and let's be honest, with a lot of people that are far more significant and important to us as far as the world standards are concerned, the Lord takes notice of us. And he looks down upon us and he smiles on us. And he's intimately aware of us. Now we move into chapter 2. Now how many of you read ahead? I asked you to read chapters 1 and 2. Okay, thank you. Two of you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, chapter 2, as you may have come to notice, is a long list of names. Various names of leaders that returned from exile to the land. Now remember, these are men and women, these are young people that were leaving the safety and the security and the establishment and the comfort of Babylon slash Persia to embark on this new venture of faith. The easy thing for these guys would have been to stay. But because God was stirring and leading them, they came to the point where they could either rebel against God's leading or submit to it and let sort of the current take them wherever God wanted to take them. And so these are people that we should really look to and say, man, what wonderful men and women of faith. I wish I had that sort of faith. Well, chapter 2 begins this way. It says, now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvei, Rehum, and Bena. Now, 11 names are listed for us initially in this chapter. Nehemiah chapter 7 is essentially the exact chapter as Ezra chapter 2, a long list of those that returned to the land. Interesting. In Nehemiah chapter 7, in this list of sort of these leaders here with Zerubbabel, actually 12 names are listed. Here, we only have 11 that are listed. Ezra chapter 8 speaks of these men offering 12 bulls for sacrifice, which seems to indicate to us that the proper number is probably 12. And that here in Ezra, for one way or another, a copyist error, one of those names were dropped off. But of the names that we do have amongst these leaders here, it begins with Zerubbabel, whom we already mentioned. The next guy that it lists is Jeshua, which is actually, I know it's spelled with an E in your Bibles, but it's actually Joshua. Not the Joshua from earlier in the Bible that settled the promised land after Moses died, but another Joshua. This particular Joshua was the high priest of the Jewish people as they returned from Babylon to the land there of Jerusalem. And quite a bit is mentioned of this Joshua in the prophetic books of Haggai and Zechariah, as well as in the book of Nehemiah, which we're going to look at when we finish Ezra. So we'll talk, about more, we'll talk more about him as we continue to progress through it. 
In addition to Zerubbabel and Joshua, there's nine other guys that are mentioned here. Now, we all recognize the name Nehemiah. Uh, we probably, many of us, recognize the name Mordecai from the book of Esther. That name stands out. This is not the Nehemiah that the book is written with his name, the next book that we're going to study. It's not the same guy, just the same name. Mordecai that you see there, not the same guy from the book of Esther. So just similar sounding or similar names actually there, but they're two other guys that just happen to share the same name. Looking down to verse 3, it says, Now the number of the men of the people of Israel. Now I know some of you are thinking, oh no, he's going to do it again. He's going to read all of these names on a Sunday morning. Actually, I'm not going to. Uh, I'll let you work through each of these names on your own. But what I want to do is we kind of make our way through this chapter is sort of skim through the list and point out certain things. First, take notice in verses 3 through 19 that throughout those verses you read the phrase, the sons of. And then it's followed by a name and a number that came from a particular family. So verse 3, for instance, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. You, you get the idea. So the first group from verses 3 to 19 are listed by family. And that total, you can total it up there, numbers 12,190 people. Skipping down to verse 20, the next group. Beginning at verse 20, they're listed not by their family names, but by the town or the city. And oftentimes the town or city was named after a prominent person in history, but these are now listed by their town or their city. And so it says, in, starting in verse 20, the sons of Gabor, 95, the sons of Bethlehem, 123, the sons of Natapha, 56, and Anatoth, 128, uh, and so on and so forth. So now this total, listed by city, totals 10,700. Then skip down to verse 36. Beginning in verse 36, special mention is made of the names of the priests. And so it includes, in particular, the sons of Jediah of the house of Joshua. Now remember, Joshua is the high priest. So of his house, the sons of Jediah, starting in verse 36, the priest of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1052, the sons of Pasher, 1247, and the sons of Harim, 1017. Now there were 24 divisions of the priesthood. We learned that when we studied the book of First Chronicles. Here, you see in this particular passage, only four of the divisions actually return from exile. And no reason is given for that. Remember how the priesthood worked. There was 24 divisions. You would serve for a week. Then you'd go back to your home. Then six months later, you'd come back for a number, another week. And the whole year was kind of spread out that particular way. So 24 divisions of the priesthood. But here, only listed for us are four divisions. So only four of these priestly lines, these families decide to return back. And the scripture doesn't tell us why. We might be able to deduce or guess there. Perhaps they figured, you know, the temple's destroyed. There's not going to be anything for us to do. Remember, the priest didn't actually uh, go out and earn a salary. It was the gifts of the people that provided their salary that they might live on. And the people didn't have anything. They were going back to a destroyed land. Maybe they figured there's no way for us to kind of survive when we get there. So 20 of the divisions say, yeah, we're not going to go. And four do go back beginning in verse 40, I think it is actually, we have the Levites. So it says, now the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmael, the sons of Hodaviah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, 128, the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom and Atir, the sons of Taman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, 
and the sons of Shabai, in all 139. Well, we saw the priest. Now we see the Levites. And we looked at this when we were in 1 Chronicles. What's the difference between a priest and a Levite? Well, remember, the short answer is this. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are actually priests. So you couldn't be a priest unless you were of the tribe of Levi. But just because you were from the tribe of Levi didn't mean that you could actually become a priest. Specifically, you had to be of the lineage of Aaron. Now remember, Aaron is Moses' brother. And he was the first high priest. And you had to be of his line in order to serve as a priest as well. All the other Levites from that particular tribe, they couldn't be priests, but they could serve in various ways connected to either the tabernacle or the temple. So you remember when the tabernacle was, uh, was up and running, every time the people of Israel would move, the tents had to be broken down, the, their articles of furniture had to be moved, the curtains had to be taken down and folded up and whatever it may be. That was done by the Levites. There was specific responsibility for each one of those. So they could assist the priest in various ways, but they couldn't actually be priests. So you have the priest, you have the Levites. Verse 43, the next group. These are called the temple servants. So it says, the temple servants, the son of Zihah, the sons of Asufa, and the sons of Tabaeoth. Now the King James Version refers to these temple servants as the Nethanim. And we're introduced to this group of people in the book of Joshua, chapter 9. Now remember, the book of Joshua was written as the children of Israel were coming into the promised land. Moses led them out of slavery, that's the book of Exodus, and then they wander around the wilderness for a period of 40 years. Then they come to the edge of uh, the, the promised land, Moses dies, and Joshua leads them in. They come into the land, they conquer very easily the, the city of Jericho. We read about that in Joshua, I think it's chapter 7. Next chapter they come to uh, is the battle of Ai. They actually lose that. It's no big deal because they, they figure out why they lost that particular battle. They deal with that. And then they go on and they become victorious. And then in chapter 9, we come to what are called the Nethanim. The Nethanim were a group of men from the town of Gide Gibeon, I should say, with a B. Gibeon was a city within the confines of the area of the Promised Land. So these are Canaanite people or Gibeonite people. They're not Jewish people. And the Jews were told that everyone in the land had to go. No one can remain in the land here. You're to go in and you're to conquer. And so these Gibeonites here, they see, man, they, they just went in and they, they destroyed Jericho like that. They wandered around a wall for seven days and the thing fell down and they were victorious. Like these people are for real. We're not messing with them. And so they come up with this elaborate plan. They're going to develop a, or they're going to uh, negotiate a peace treaty with the Jewish people. Now, I don't know if they know the rules here. The children of Israel weren't allowed to have peace treaties with the people that lived in the land. So they have to go the route of deception. And starting in Joshua chapter 9, verse 3, it says this. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning, and they went and they made ready provisions, and they took worn, it should say worn, worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions, their food, were dry and uh, crumbly. Verse 6, And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant 
with us. Now remember, they don't come from a distant country. They come from the, the town down the street. But they make it look as if they're coming from a distant country. Verse 12, here's our bread, they say. I'm sorry. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day. We set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbling. It wasn't warm when they left their houses. It was the five-day-old stuff that was lying you know, in the bread basket. These wineskins they show them, they were brand new when we filled them. And behold, look, they're, they're about to burst, or they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours, they were our brand new Christmas clothes that we wore to church on the following Sunday. But now, look, they're worn out from the very long journey. I mean, these guys are schemers. This is an elaborate plan of deception that they come up with. And notice what Joshua and the leaders do. It says, so the men took some of their provisions. They ate a little bit of it. And oh, this is old. This is disgusting. But notice it says, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Here's Joshua, you know, a week into his leadership. And he's making a huge blunder here. He's not seeking the Lord for wisdom. He's just looking at the information in front of him. And he's kind of winging it. He's making a big mistake. And so Joshua made peace with them. And he made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them, we will let you live, he says. Well, the telling words again are, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And eventually the truth comes out that these guys had lied to Joshua and his men, but Joshua honors the treaty that he agreed to with these, with these men. Despite the fact that they lied to him, they misrepresented themselves to him, Joshua said, you know what, we gave our word that we would let you live, so we'll let you live. You dirty, rotten scoundrels. Uh, something like that, he said to them. Verse 19 actually says, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and so now we may not touch them. Well, three times during their spiel when they came and said, look at our clothes, they were brand new. Look at our food, it was hot when it came out of the oven. Three times during that, they said, look, we will be your servants. We'll be your servants. We'll be your servants. They say again and again and again here. And so that's exactly what Joshua now says to them. So he says to them, well, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath come upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said, well, let them live. And so they became cutters of wood and drawlers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Cutters of wood and drawlers of water. Now, that doesn't mean these guys became sort of their, their butlers and did all the housework for them or anything like that. The cutting of the wood and the drawing of water, the wood was for the sacrifices and the water was for the cleansing ceremonies that the priest had to undergo and the people had to undergo. So these guys become the temple servants, initially the tabernacle, eventually the temple. And here we are now, a thousand years later, and these guys are still serving the Lord as temple servants. So they were sort of forced into doing this, but as a result, somewhere during that process of it, God got a hold of their hearts. You say, well, they had to do it. It was either that or be killed in battle here. Well, that may have been the case during Joshua, and that may have been the case during the thousand years leading up to the captivity. But remember now, in the book of Ezra, everyone that's returning to the land is doing so voluntarily. So these are guys that were forced to be servants initially, taken off into captivity, thousand years or 70 years have gone by, and now they're being given the option, do you want to go back to the land and do what you did before and serve in the temple? And they said, sign me up, put me down here for that. So these non-Jewish temple servants are choosing to go back. And I think a point that I can take from this is this. 
Sometimes serving the Lord is habit-forming. And I mean that in a good way. Sometimes it just becomes something you love to do. And you can't see yourself not actually doing. And I would suggest to you that serving the Lord is actually good for us. That serving the Lord can have the effect of linking our hearts to God. And I say it can have the effect because we always have to guard our hearts lest we drift from the Lord even in the midst of our service or we begin to serve Him with wrong intentions and so on. But assuming that our intentions are right and our heart is set on pleasing God, serving the Lord has the effect of drawing us closer to Jesus. And this is one of the main reasons I think God wants us to serve so that we will draw closer to Jesus. Remember, God doesn't need our service, but He does want our hearts. And in His wisdom, He knows that as we serve Him, our hearts are drawn to Him. And so here are these temple servants now, returning of their own volition. Verse 55, it begins this way, the sons of Solomon's servants. These guys were likely the descendants of the various people that Solomon conquered. And again, like the temple servants, they voluntarily linked themselves with Solomon as, ser- as servants, and they returned. Verse 58 gives us the number. All of the temple servants and Solomon's servants were 392. Verse 59, the following were those that came up from Telmala, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. Uh, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And then it goes on and it starts to list their particular name. Verse 62. These saw their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until they should be, there should be a priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. And despite the diligence of the Jewish people during 70 years of captivity to take a careful record of the lineage of people, and you're born of this household and and all of that sort of stuff, these guys, for one reason or another, they could not prove their descent. Now that's no big deal if you're Joe Schmo. But if you want to be a priest of God, it's a, it's a tremendous deal. And you could not serve. You got a problem. It just wasn't going to happen. If you couldn't show your lineage, then you weren't going to be able to serve as a priest. So, how do we find out if they're priests? Well, we go, look at verse 33, to the Urim and the Thummim. They had to consult that. The who? The what? Who are they? What are they? Well, the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know for sure exactly what they are. It doesn't seem they made their way back to Babylon, or from Babylon, actually, so that they never arrived here. But the words translate light and perfection. And we don't know exactly what they were, but they had something to do with the priest. They were connected to the priest's breastplate that uh, he wore. And some people suggest, with the idea of light and perfection, that they were a light stone and a dark stone. And one meant yes, and the other meant no. And the question would be asked, and the priest would pull in. If he pulled out the, the yes stone, then there's your answer. Pulled out the no stone, there's your particular answer. God, should we do this? Pull out a stone, and you have your answer. Again, we don't know exactly for sure, but whatever this Urim and the Thummim was, it assisted the priest in knowing the will of God. And so in this case, they'd need to be consulted to determine if these guys were of priestly lineage or not. Verse 64, now the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides the male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 200 male and female singers, that's a choir. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,700. 
and 20. So you have about 50,000 people that returned from the captivity to restore and rebuild this land. Verse 6, some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. And according to their ability, they gave to the treasurer of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, 100 priests' garment. So here are these guys. They marched 900 miles through the wilderness. It probably took four to five months, they suggest. They get to Jerusalem. They see the area of where the temple uh, had been, and everything is in ruins. How would you feel after that journey? You remember National Lampoon's vacation? And they go on that long journey across the, the nation, and they come to Wally World, and it's closed. Well, here are these guys. They, co- they go this long journey, and they get to this particular place, and it's in ruins. It's destroyed. Would you be a little bit disappointed? Would you be discouraged? Why did we do it? We made such a big mistake. All these things. But these guys, rather than being discouraged, the sight of this partial temple moves them to give even more of their resources. They just finished up a 900-mile journey, and rather than grumbling, they take a deep breath, they remind themselves that nobody said this was going to be easy, that this is a venture in faith, and then they got to work. I think these guys are awesome. They remind me, if you will, of church planters. You know, they, they leave an established, wonderful, everything is great kind of church, and they say, you know what? We want to see God do a work like this somewhere else as well, on the other side of town. And they go into all the difficulties and all the challenges that that brings because they want to serve the Lord. And th- these guys are like that. Verse 70, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, they lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns as well. So the people now are back in the land. When we come back together again, we'll see what they start doing on day one when they wake up that first day in the land of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these men and these women. Lord, I just pray that their, uh, their testimony, their example, Lord, would be an encouragement to us. Lord, that each one of us, that we would be a people of faith. Lord, that we would step out. Lord, even when the facts and the evidence seem to say, don't do it, it's a mistake. But Lord, because you're leading, that we step out in faith because we want to be with where you are going and what you're doing. Lord, make us people like that. And Father, Lord, uh, we look back to the heritage of these guys. Lord, and the wonderful things that you did through them. And Lord, your son ultimately coming through these guys, being back in the land, that he could be born in the land and our Messiah could come forth as you prophesied in days of old, Lord. So Lord, would you please, I ask, stir our hearts. As a church, certainly, a movement of people, but Lord, even as families and as individuals, Lord, that we would be tapped into what it is you're trying to speak to our hearts and we would step out in faith again and again and again, Lord, in this coming year. Father, for us, that uh, maybe it's a little challenging and we're discouraged right now. We're wondering why, did, why we do what we do and we're wondering if you even take notice. But I pray that you would remind us and refresh our thinking that you do see and you take notice even of the utensils in the drawer. So, Lord, encourage us. Father, I ask this week that you would send us forth from here, Lord, vibrant. That your life, Lord, would just be overflowing out of our hearts. And, Lord, that we would have an impact on those that we come in contact with. We pray in your name. Amen.